Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Joyce Zhang, co-founder and CEO of Alaris Global, a premier global expansion marketplace connecting international high-tech companies with top local talent in sales, business development, and general management across the U.S. and other key markets. Welcome to the show, Joyce. Thanks so much for having me, Elaine. When we first met, I thought what you were doing was incredibly clever, and it, it felt to me like a reverse or inverse touring or ARC or terminal or things like that. And you actually started pre-pandemic. So what were the insights that led you to identify that there was a need here? Yeah. Well, um, thank you for asking, and thank you for saying that we are you know, a clever inversion of the norm, although I, I think I'm very bullish on the fact that we will soon be the norm in the next decade or so. Um, the insight that led to Alaris Global is that I had the privilege of working abroad for a lot of my career. I would work with um, international companies, first U.S. companies launching abroad, and then with international companies locally and in different startup ecosystems from Nairobi to Singapore to Beijing um, to Tel Aviv. And one of the things that always struck me is just how much innovation and ambition and ingenuity there existed outside of the Valley. I mean, of, of course, Silicon Valley is still the premier innovation and tech hub of the world, but there are many, many other um, exciting opportunities and, and people out there. And many of them were actually looking for a way to expand their horizons into the U.S. So I thought, you know, we were so focused from the U.S. side of how to go to other markets. We didn't realize that there was an even bigger world out there, um, th three quarters of the world's GDP, actually, that wanted to do business in the U.S. And so that was the beginning of this thought of what would it take to really connect and democratize access to global markets for a Nigerian or Israeli or Indian company. And um, that was the that was the genesis of Alaris. Very interesting. I'm curious <clears throat> to get your take on why so many international companies want to target the U.S. market. And the reason I ask the question is I always joke to people, we're only 360-ish million people in the U.S. And if you look at China, if you look at India, it's almost a billion and a half people. And we often talk about the billion people of China or the billion people of India. We are literally a rounding error when it comes to that. Like we are the rounding error. And so I always find it interesting that so many people still, despite having a giant global population, are targeting the U.S. market. Do you have a sense of why? Well, we're not really a rounding error compared to them. I mean, we have a third of the population of each of the countries, um, you listed or, or a bit over that. And we are the third most populous country in the world. But more so than population, it's about um, purchasing power. And it's also about um, enterprise, uh, enterprise software, enterprise SaaS, B2B companies. The U.S. is by far the largest market in the world still by GDP or GDP per capita. And when it comes to... Um, businesses, the U.S. is over 90 million small businesses. And so for any um, founder or any entrepreneur, any business owner anywhere, the U.S. is still the single most attractive market in the entire world. There is an American dream that I think sometimes outside the U.S. is even stronger and has more 
um, fervor than sometimes within our own country. The purchasing power piece makes a ton of sense. I can definitely see that being a, a massive driver. When you look at some of these international companies, it seems like the focus for Laris is very much on the sales and go-to-market side. Where are the gaps in their skill sets? I think there are a lot of gaps. I mean, part of it is just you don't know what you don't know. I mean, if someone were to plop me down in the middle of uh, you know, Kazakhstan and tell me that I had to figure out how to do go-to-market in Almaty within like, you know, the next month or so, I would probably be pretty lost. And um, the same is true anywhere. If you're in a different country, if you don't have local networks, if you don't understand how things are done, um, you know, watching Hollywood movies is not the same as selling to like an SMB owner in the US. So it's it's just really hard. Um, you're in a different market. So that's the number one thing. I think the second piece, of course, is that the US is a very competitive and sophisticated market. It's one where, yes, of course, if you get the right um, playbook, if you kind of execute well, you do have a chance to make it. I think that's another huge draw to the American dream. It is very meritocratic. Um, so people from anywhere in the world have a chance to make it in America, but it doesn't mean it's easy. It takes a ton of investment and a lot of learning and a lot of humility. So um, that you know that's why we're here to help because it's really hard to do it by yourself. And maybe it'll take years to get to the point where someone can learn how to effectively sell in the US by starting from scratch. To your point on that kind of, you don't know what you don't know, or even cultural differences, have you seen any challenges with the Americans who are then placed into an international company who probably operates very, very differently? Well, that is part of our secret sauce, which is that we do create a talent community of people who are predisposed to be really open-minded and culturally empathetic and aware. But that doesn't mean, you know, misunderstandings and friction points don't happen. I mean, even within American companies, you know, people have sometimes uh, misunderstandings with their boss or colleagues, or there are things that people say which are, um, you know, not always the most appropriate. So these things happen. I think the most important um, factor, though, is that we want to make sure people give each other the benefit of the doubt. I think coming in from a place of trust and grace is actually incredibly important. And that smooths out a lot of ruffles. And then there are actually really fun ways that people can kind of learn about cultural differences. They can learn um, that sometimes, you know, for example, cold emails might actually work in the US where it would never work in other markets, let's say like China, um, because cold outreach or even this sort of transactional um, kind of product-led growth um, that that might work in one market is really foreign in another market because trust and sales are just done differently. Interesting. Yeah, that that I can see that completely. For you to date, has it been easier um, to get the supply side or the demand side? Is there a ton of companies looking to launch in the US um, or is that been more of the challenge? I think for any two-sided marketplace, you'll always have... Um, both sides be very important. And so, of course, they talk about how do you kind of solve the chicken and egg problem? How do you um, jumpstart the marketplace? For us, we realize that there are actually a lot of Americans who are excited about global remote jobs. And this was pre-pandemic, of course, it was global jobs, not necessarily remote. But then during the pandemic, it became even more um, obvious to us that remote work or hybrid work or some sort of work where people would have the flexibility and autonomy to um, work in the places they wanted to and in the styles they wanted was not going to go away. And um, I think we've even seen a higher uptick in on the American side where people are excited about Alaris because they get uh, paid more, actually. 
um, from their local market. They get treated with a lot of respect because they are the country manager or the first salesperson or the first representative that this company has or among the first representatives. And they get to work from anywhere. And there's definitely a large segment of the population that finds that really amazing. I mean, if a million people visited Airbnb's career page after Brian Chesky announced that they had this work from anywhere model, I think you can kind of see that um, there, there, there has been you know, quite a bit of popularity when we t tell people about what we're building. So on the other side of the marketplace, there are a lot of companies that want to pursue their global ambitions and their global expansion dreams. Um, I think the challenge sometimes is just finding them at the right place, right time, because some of them um, might maybe delay their plans because they didn't realize how accessible it was. They think they have to spend you know, they have to have millions of dollars in the bank to set up a U.S. office. They have to physically be able to go and like get a visa and then um, immigrate and relocate their entire family and have to really, really make a big um, investment of like time, energy, money and sacrifice. And so sometimes they don't realize that we're there. But the goal is to educate the market and to get in front of um, the right customers at the time when they're even starting to think about these plans. With a lot of the other companies that, you know, at the beginning, you were saying we're going to switch what the norm looks like. A lot of these companies were playing off of this cost arbitrage where companies in the US were saying, hey, we need to hire 10 engineers. It tends to be engineering. And we can go and hire them for one eighth the cost if we hire in Latin America, as an example. How are companies thinking about this to me is, is the opposite, where you're probably hiring somebody who might be the highest paid person at the company because they happen right. to have the right network and you know the right skill set and the knowledge of the US market. How are they justifying that type of cost and ROI? Well, that's why we focus on go-to-market and sales. It's actually not uncommon, even for an American company, for the salesperson to be the highest paid person in the company. And that's because if you're a really good salesperson and you're bringing in a lot of revenue, then you're going to be compensated in part with a percentage commission that is commensurate with the amount of business you bring. And so it's actually something that's interestingly universally acknowledged that if you're bringing value, you're bringing money in, you should get paid more. Um, so for us, it's not about cost arbitrage. It's about revenue access. It's about growth access. And it's about talent um, opportunity, which they didn't have before. So that's why we really enjoy what we're doing. It feels like it's a win-win on both sides. The Americans get a good job, the international companies are creating jobs, and they're also getting capacity building for their own local economies, and they're expanding their presence. And it's, again, not because they're offshoring jobs. They're actually trying to um, become more ambitious. They're trying to achieve more growth. I had heard someone told me early in my career, which has always stuck with me, that in sales, especially enterprise software sales, you're either rich or you're new. And it's so true. <laughs> if you're good, you make That's a, a good... ton of money. <laughs> If not, you cycle. Yeah, that, I, I should start using that line in the future. Um, and and you know, it's it's something that is really uncontroversial in the sense that yes, sometimes companies will feel that this is a big investment because it is hiring someone in a market in which you know the average GDP per capita is maybe ten times what it is in their own country can feel like a lot. But again, this is because they want to access this market and then in turn global markets because being able to set up. A presence in the U.S. is really their gateway or their ticket to being a multinational corporation, of having thought leadership beyond their borders, of accessing potential partners and credibility and trust that goes far beyond being a domestic player. And same with an American company. If a company is only headquartered in the U.S. at a certain point, we reach our own ceiling of growth. And so that's why we were expanding into other markets as well. 
How does it, you know, we've seen the rise of Deal and Remote.com and Papaya Global and these companies that help you hire individual people offshore and acting as the EOR or PEO. How does it work uh, with, with Alaris? Are you acting as the employer of record? We are, but we're mainly focused on the talent piece. Um, talent is what's most important to the companies we work with. The employer record element, and, and we're happy to partner with other payroll companies if it's you know more complex or if there are certain things that um, that the client needs that we can't provide. But we provide that actually more as a soft landing or a transition because ultimately um, we want to do what's best to resolve friction on both sides. So there's nothing more frustrating for a company than to find someone they really, really like, they feel so excited about, that person's excited about them. But of course, in the time that a really good salesperson is interviewing for a job, he or she has a ton of options. And so it's like you have this two-week window of time to close them. And then you give them an offer, they verbally accept, and then they realize, oh, wait, you don't have health insurance set up? (laughs) So... It's sometimes very time sensitive, but of course, many of these companies, they don't even know if they're going to make it in the U.S. They don't know anyone in the U.S., so they don't usually set up um, their own you know, operations or their own payroll beforehand. They, they really are more focused on the talent, on getting an American who is willing to represent them. And then when that happens, then all the other things fall, have to fall into place pretty quickly. This might be a very Silicon Valley type question, but in the U.S., we value equity a lot, especially when you're joining a startup, high growth company, early stage startup, things like that. I've seen within our portfolio and founder friends that oftentimes when they're hiring people abroad, they don't value equity in the same way. They don't even think about it as we do in the US. How do some of the people, the talent on your platform think about equity and how how are the companies either trying to incentivize that or not? So we do have companies that offer equity. And then for some, um, you know, it, it is more complex. I'm sure there's a great company out there that's ready in the making, would love to partner with them. That is like the Carta for international equity. Because if you're incorporated in another country, I mean, think about how complex it is to even do filings in the US and issue shares and like vesting and 83B elections. And that's literally just for American companies in the US dealing with the IRS. If you have to deal with all these other companies, it can get a little bit tricky. Um, so for for some companies, they solve that by, you know, actually incorporating in the U.S. so they can issue shares for others. They they have some other workarounds. But for a lot of the people that work with us, I mean, disproportionately, they don't live in Silicon Valley. One of the things that we find most exciting, um, we were chatting about this right before our call, but I grew up in Michigan and my co-founder grew up in Wisconsin. So a lot of the people that we're giving jobs to are actually based in Michigan, Kentucky, Iowa, Oklahoma, the states where remote jobs with global companies are unheard of and where people really value these opportunities. And I think that's another reason we're able to offer above local market rates because they're getting paid really good tech sales jobs. Um, But they're working for a company that is allowing them to work virtually. Whereas an American tech company, especially now that the pandemic is kind of, or, or the new normal, I suppose, has set in, they're asking their employees to come back into the office And so that means if you're in Oklahoma, if you're not physically located next to the office, then you either have to move or you have to get another job. But with our jobs, that's not the case. And so um, I think a lot of them are just really grateful. And also equity in some ways, one can think of as a commission. I mean, of course, it's more like a company-wide commission if the company does really well. Um, But I think that typically the company will find ways to compensate people in a way that's fair, that they're really excited about, and that might be a mixture of just giving them 
um, more more cash and more commission when which is um, something the company can control versus dealing with international uh, you know legal equity grants which is harder for everyone to control it is definitely a complex process I what makes a good remote salesperson? Have you seen any patterns or any typical features of a person who is successful in one of these roles? I think it's what makes a good remote worker in general. Um, so there, there are two pieces of it. One is what makes a good salesperson. I think there's a lot of literature around that. And then what makes for a good remote salesperson? And actually, the skill sets overlap quite heavily, which is why Sales is a really, really good um, role to have that flexibility and to have the, um, you know, the autonomy for people to really just show from their output that whatever it is that they're doing, um, it's being done well. If they have targets, if they're really systematic about pursuing them, they don't need a manager there breathing over their shoulders, micromanaging them, kind of checking in on them every day. A lot of the salespeople we talk to are actually really glad <laughs> on some levels that their manager is many time zones away because they feel it's one of the most freeing and kind of liberating jobs where they truly have trust and ownership and they can really shine. Um, and then, you know, they can structure their day as they see, see fit. We talk to a lot of people who are, who are parents and they are able to pick up their child in the afternoon um, and then resume um, some of the work that they have to do, let's say prospecting or sourcing things that can be done asynchronously in the evening. And that's something that allows them to structure their day in a way where it makes sense for them. And of course, they're being judged ultimately by the revenue they bring in. So if they only wanted to take a single call a month and they just closed a huge enterprise client once a month from that one single call, then then great. You know, no one's going to complain and no one's going to look the other way. But um, this is this is another reason it's great. But then it does require people who are very self-motivated and usually with some amount of experience. It's probably harder for those who are junior, who need a lot of hands-on coaching, um, just to be totally you know, transparent about that, because not only is your employer in another time zone, but he or she is relying upon you to teach them about go-to-market in the US. They don't know. They don't know the American culture. They don't know the American way of selling. Um, so it's usually really great for people who are senior ICs or even those who are managers, and they're looking to be the first um, you know, wave in the U.S. representing this international company and then building out their team. I think that's a very astute observation that the things that make good salespeople and good remote employees in general, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> tend to overlap highly. It's very true. They oftentimes tend to be very autonomous, very uh, relationship driven. So you understand who your audience is and you go and book your own business kind of thing. Interesting. Are there specific corridors that you're finding have the most demand, meaning we're finding that companies from India have the highest demand for initial sales teams, as just as an example? Well, that's a really great insight. I'm curious to hear from you, Elaine, because from your vantage point, you get to see all these amazing companies and innovative tech companies from all around the world. Uh, are you seeing this from India? Because I, I do see it, but I'm curious from your vantage point if that's um, also a trend. Yeah, I would say the, the corridors that I see the most are one would be Israel. Israel has some of the highest proportion of highly technical founders, yet they uh, tend to not be as strong on the go to market. And because they have such a sl small population, they tend to immediately target the US market, especially with things like cybersecurity, enterprise SaaS, that kind of stuff. We are seeing a lot more companies with very, very 
highly technical, um, highly skilled founders in India who are also now staying in India as opposed to having one or more of the founders come to San Francisco. So I think that's going to be the second area that I see. Well, you hit the nail on the head in both regards. Um, We are also, so those are by far the biggest um, corridors where we see interest. There's also a lot of interest um, coming from China, but I would say that there's also a lot of hesitation and just lack of understanding. So, um, and I I think the misunderstanding comes from both sides. Like there, there's often geopolitics and ways in which you know, there's actually a lot more business collaboration and business overlap than 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 might meet the eye. But because a lot of um, Chinese tech companies have recently had some struggles or issues, um, both domestically and internationally, there have been um, there's been a little bit of slowdown. But there's actually a large um, amount of interest and effort. So that would be a third market that I would put in there. And then, um, yeah, we're seeing exciting things happening all over the world, actually. Latin America, Africa tech, like the the technology is thriving. And one of the things that I find most inspiring about being in this space, too, is your country of origin and where you were born no longer has to dictate your life outcome. And I think part of it is that these founders have ambition. They are being inspired by, you know, the Steve Jobs and and other kind of um uh, the the I, I hear so many people talk about Elon Musk and, and others, but they're inspired by examples that they see in the U.S. or by you know immigrants in the U.S. Frankly, but now the the title shift is coming because they themselves realize that this is accessible. And to your point, they don't even have to physically move because some of them don't have that luxury. They don't they can't get a visa. Um, there are certain markets that we work in where it is incredibly difficult to get a visa to come to the U.S. either as a tourist or certainly a work visa. And um, they don't want to leave their families behind because now community is increasingly, I mean, community has always been important, but I think during a pandemic, there was a lot of soul searching and people realized that they, that life is too precious to spend so much time away from your kids or your aging parents. So remote work affords them not only market access, but the lifestyle access that they need to live a more, you know, holistic life. It seems that we've had a dramatic shift over the last two years in terms of people moving back home. Use the example of Oklahoma. That's actually where my whole family is from and where I was born. Not that I'm going back to Oklahoma anytime soon, but I have had a lot of friends who've moved back to the middle of the country, the South, the East Coast. And it also feels like we're seeing another trend that I I do feel like overlaps with what you were describing in that people don't necessarily want to work for one company anymore. They want to not necessarily the direct gig economy, but they want to be a freelancer. They want to be a contractor. They want to go and work on a bunch of different things, have that intellectual stimulation, have that diverse set of colleagues. Is that something you're also seeing? Yes. I think that one of the nice things about doing global business too, is that embedded in that is that it is intellectually stimulating and also working in startups. That overlap is incredibly um, unpredictable and it requires a lot of flexibility and uh, adaptability. Um, so we we see that people find that they can have multiple careers in one company because there are just many ways in which they have to change their role. They wear a lot of different hats. Maybe as a company grows, they specialize on something. Um, so there's definitely that. But to your point, and this is actually something that um, growing up in Michigan, I witnessed as well. People used to work their entire careers in one company and they would get a pension and there was this um, inherent stability. But then even within our lifetime, a lot of those companies like General Motors or Ford, they even went bankrupt, which was unheard of and unthinkable um, just a couple of years prior. So 
I, I think this generation in particular has had to weather, I suppose one could argue now two financial recessions, <laughs> perhaps one bigger than the other. And um, even for older generations, there's this acknowledgement that you just constantly have to learn and adapt. And it could take the form of a gig economy. I, I think it's less that people like jumping around because some, some people would still prefer some element of security, but it's this element where they want to constantly learn and grow and have professional development opportunities. And they don't want to become complacent and they don't want to become irrelevant. Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, definitely seeing a lot of that in terms of um, across social media or publications around Gen Z really not wanting to feel like a cog in a machine and wanting to have more ownership over their lives and their careers. It feels like tapping into that directly. I know you've also thought a lot about just the future of humanity, work, where people live, how they live, and you've kind of titled it Globalization 3.0. We'd love to hear a little bit more about that thesis and where you think we're, we're all going. Yeah, th thanks. Well, I'm very excited about that thesis because I, although some friends had told me that this this term is no, no longer unique, so maybe I need to upgrade it to Globalization 4.0. But <laughs> it's just this thought that, you know, the world can be more distributed and more equitable than ever before. Um, and I alluded to this earlier, but you know, there's this concept of the lottery of life. And if you're born an American citizen, you have really won the lottery of life. And if you're born in, in general, um, able-bodied or in a developing country or wherever it is, there's just so many ways in which you'll always be privileged. And um, one of my thought process, processes had always been, but what if that access were granted more broadly? What is it about physically being in one place that so dramatically changes your outcome other than, you know, great weather, but even I suppose within the US there's quite variable weather. Um, so globalization 3.0 to me meant a decentralization or at least a, a wider distribution of capital, of access to resources, of knowledge and of achievements and opportunity. And that means being able to use kind of digital means to transmit knowledge across borders. We talk about brain drain. I think there's a lot of um, indication that there is now reversal of brain drain or what I like to call brain circulation because knowledge that goes from one geography, um, Oklahoma arguably has its own version of brain drain, but people can still contribute to Oklahoma mm -hmm. even from outside the state so long as they have an emotional tie or some reason to want to contribute there. Um, so, and, and then it's also not like the old days where it's just about Western developed countries kind of, kind of setting up extractive, you know, colonies or mercantile, um, uh, setups in other markets. It's actually about people being able to transact more, um, more on a, an equal footing with each other and being able to do trade with those from all different walks of life or trade. When I say trade, I mean more like knowledge trade from all walks of life. And so it's um, just as someone in the US could hire someone in India very easily before, someone in India should have just the same ease of hiring someone in the US in the future. Yeah, I love that vision. Are you, I know you're squarely focused right now on <clears throat> helping international companies expand into the US, but have you been seeing a pull for American companies who are looking to tap into some of these other major geos? Um, yes, we actually do help with that too a little bit, but I mean, we are we are a startup, and so we do try to be focused. And I think it's um, it's also more rewarding for us personally to help the rest of the world come to the U.S. because they have a harder time. Like I think American companies, and I, I was lucky to be hired by some of those American companies, launched in other markets um, even starting decades ago. 
but this large tidal wave of international companies setting up a U.S. office and really a brand that is not, you know, in the future, um, maybe the best shoes or the best backpack or the best phones or even the top restaurants are not going to be American brands. They're going to be Israeli brands or um, Korean brands or Brazilian brands. But right now that's still a little bit far off. And so I, I, I think that this is the future vision that we're driving towards when we talk about diversity and its diversity of thought, its diversity of origin, its diversity of culture. Um, that's the kind of world that I think we'll all eventually live in. One thing I have to ask, because I get asked this all the time, where do you think we're going in terms of work generally? Are people going to go back to an office? Is everyone eventually going to be completely remote? We're wearing a headset in the metaverse. Where do you think we're going in five to 10 years? I think realistically, um, in five to 10 years, it will still be hybrid. There will be many jobs that require being in person, uh, usually manufacturing jobs, service jobs, um, you know, restaurant industry, et cetera. There will be jobs that where having that person or, or home care, um, where having a human there is really crucial as part of the work and as part of the experience. And then I think when it comes to um, what some people call like digital jobs or white collar jobs, um, that will become more and more hybrid. And I think it's going to be a push and a pull. Like employees really do want it. Like all the surveys we've run, all the information we've seen is that overwhelmingly, once you get to a certain age, um, and usually it's just a few years out, people prefer hybrid work and flexible work um, arrangements. And then even for people who are straight out of school, they like in person because it's good for socializing, but they still like the flexibility of being able to choose when and how they socialize with their colleagues. Uh, so that I think is going to become um, more of a norm. And then of course, remote, fully remote work is uh, something that many companies will choose to adopt and it allows them to hire more diversity. It allows them to hire all over the world. And then it's just going to be a matter of more um, infrastructure to support hybrid work or support kind of international teams. And the one thing that's going to be really hard to overcome is just the rotation of the sun. Technology can't really help that too much, but maybe we'll even have these like, you know, blue lights and some people will just be perpetually nocturnal um, because they want to, you know, live in Tahiti on a beach, but they don't necessarily want to work those time zones. Oh man, that's the one thing I, I keep hearing all these people move to Hawaii and I'm like, I can't do the five or 6am thing. I'm just not a morning person <laughs> trying to work those hours. So hopefully we can kind of create a 24 hour, 24 seven coverage map of the US or the, the world. <laughs> You don't have to get so up long at five. as people get sleep and don't burn out. I think that 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 will be the key of in a world in which there are no boundaries, which is a good thing. Like there's equal access. How can you create your own boundaries in terms of when is me time? Because I think that is important. And when is like on time? Through your work in Alaris, if you weren't working on this company, I'm sure you've seen a ton of other things that you think are broken about the way we work today. What are some of the other hair on fire problems when it comes to international business that you think needs to be tackled? Well, I I think, um, gosh, when it comes to international business, I I definitely wish that there were more more grace. I, I think I alluded to this before. On a people to people level, what I really enjoy about what we do is that people are really humane to each other. And I, I I'd gotten questions before about like, oh, wouldn't there be friction or aren't there stereotypes on both sides? And it's like, well, one of the best ways to dispel those stereotypes is to actually work with someone. Um, directly. And so, you know, we have indirect impact because that is one of our key missions. We want to connect the world in, you know, meaningful working relationships. But I suppose if I weren't working on Alaris, I would be trying to tackle that in a more direct way. Um, because I think there's a lot of space there. And it, 
it comes down to, I mean, there are programs around like scholarships and exchange programs. I think those are incredibly important. I was actually quite saddened to see that many scholarship programs for international studies have actually been defunded or um, the Fulbright is no longer available, for example, in China and other and other key markets. And so I, I think that's actually a loss. And my I would be working on initiatives like that, I think. I think that's so true. I love the concept of having more grace and curiosity and general understanding. Just feels like it would be a societal net positive. I agree. We we should try to we should try to do more of that. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Well, this has been fantastic. It was so great getting to hear a little bit more about what you're doing with Alaris and just your future of, of global globalization and work uh, PCs here. One question I like to end with for everybody is, have you ever been given a piece of advice or guidance in your life or career that's really stuck with you and are words you live by? Yeah, one that I really live by is that people don't always remember what you say, they remember how you made them feel. And I think that's even more important in a world in which sometimes literally what you say can be misinterpreted or is in a different language. And so I always try to think about how I'm making people feel and how others feel in in different scenarios. I love that. And it is so, so, so true. Well, people want to learn more about you and Alaris. Where should they go? Uh, Well, they should um, follow us on social media. We are on Alaris at Alaris Global on Twitter, Instagram, on LinkedIn. We have a page and would love to just be in touch if they want to reach out. It's just Alaris, A-L-A-R-I-S-S.com. And if there are any companies out there, international companies looking to hire sales or go to market in the US, you know where to go. Exactly. Thank you so much, Elaine. Thanks, Joyce.